God meant it for good. This trial was not meant to hinder the worship of a good and loving God. It was designed to heighten it. God sent the famine, not just to test his faith, but to prove his faith. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. God, we ask that you would open our eyes this morning to behold wonderful things in your word. We know that every word is given by inspiration and every word is profitable. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to learn from this great historical narrative in the book of Genesis in the life of a servant who is far from perfect, but whose faith was in a perfect God. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be those who learn from warning and from exhortation. And we ask, God, you would make us willing hearers and doers of your word as we study it this morning to the praise of your glorious grace. It's for Christ's sake that we ask it. Amen. Well, where do you go to find refuge or to find security? Where do God's people go in times of plight? Not in the times of blessing, not in the times where we have ease and we have rest, but where do we go Where do we turn to for security and refuge when times are tough? Some people find their security or their refuge in their income or their access to someone who has income. Maybe it's a wealthy family member or a friend. And that person will bail them out if times get tough. Many of us, when we look at the despairing times in our world today and we ask how in the world can things get any worse? We might be tempted, even as Christians, to confer much or all of our security into a political candidate who will get the sinking ship back on course. Others will look inward, find refuge in themselves, or find refuge in a bottle that's filled with pills or alcohol, seeking to obscure or escape or mask the pain and the trial. The truth is we all go somewhere for help. We go somewhere for support, for refuge. In Psalm 46, the sons of Korah uh, wrote a psalm that the reformers like Martin Luther found great courage and hope in. And here's what they said in Psalm 46. In verse one, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been a part of a moment on the planet when the earth itself gave way, when mountains crashed into the sea, that's never happened to me. And not only is that something incredibly dangerous, but it's also a phenomenon that man in his own strength is absolutely powerless to slow or to sway. It just happens. And yet in the midst of that, the psalmist could say, God is our refuge. The psalmist remembers that Yahweh is the one who is our hiding place. He's not the last resort. He's not an afterthought. No, he's a very present help when his people are facing various troubles of various kinds. We just sang it together as we opened our gathering this morning, a mighty fortress 
is our God. He's a bulwark never failing. He's our helper amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. That's something that we yes and amen to or we scratch our head and wonder. In fact, the answer 26 in the Heidelberg Catechism says this. This is so important. And I wonder, do you believe this? The answer is, I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul. Do you believe that? And he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. Do you believe that? He is able to do this because he is almighty God. Do you believe that? He desires to do this because he's a faithful father. We must believe that. Will we trust our faithful God in times of trouble or will we look to the arm of the flesh to save? That's a theme that we're going to see continually in and through the life of Abraham, the father of faith. We began our study last week in the life of Abraham as we left off in Genesis chapter 11 with the foundation of history and we turned the page to Genesis 12 and that took a few months to established the foundation of history, didn't it? The first 11 chapters of Genesis, which are, for many of us, our favorite passages of the scriptures. There's a lot, a lot of science there. There's a lot of background. Uh, it's been intriguing. It's been a great study so far. But now, last week, we turned the page, literally, to chapter 12 and began a new series, a new study, a new focus, which will take us until Genesis chapter 23. This is a new section where we learn about the foundation of Israel, which is their father Abraham. And we learn in those opening verses, as Pastor Micah taught us, that God came to Abram, that he called Abram to go to a land that he would show him. And then he promised to bless Abram by making his name great, by blessing those who bless him, by cursing those who dishonored him. And God promised that, that through Abram's seed, all the peoples, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This was a promise that would ultimately be fulfilled as Jesus, our Messiah, was born to put an end to sin and provide redemption to all people, that it was through him that all the nations would be blessed, through his salvation. And we saw last week how Abram responded to God's promise. He responded through faith and through obedience. He did leave his country. He left his kindred. He left his father's house. He went out with his father, Haran, or uh, Terah, and then he left Haran after Terah died, to continue heading to the land of Canaan. And we saw when he arrived there at the beginning section of Genesis 12 that right in the midst of where the Canaanites dwelt, right in the place near Bethel and Ai and in Shechem, he sets up an altar in defiance of those false worshipers of Baal. He wasn't intimidated by their idolatry. He was faithful. He was loyal to Yahweh. And his act was really an act of defiance. He says, I'm going to set up an altar of Yahweh right in the midst of you Baal worshipers. He constructed, as we saw, multiple stone altars, a permanent place of worship, even though he still dwelt in a temporal tent. His priority as a man of faith was not to build a name for himself, a place for himself. He was looking ahead to a city with foundations that were rooted in God. He was worshiping the one true and living God. So man, we are off to a great start with the father of the faith. Oh, that we could skip verses 10 uh, through the beginning of chapter 13. Just the rest of 10 through 20. Today we're going to see 
the first of a handful of very poor decisions that Abram makes. And these seem to indicate to us that his faith is far from flawless. Even the patriarch, the father of the Jewish people, needed a savior. You might be a perfectionist here this morning. It's wonderful to know, aren't you reminded often that you are not perfect, that our heavenly father is. And I'm so thankful, as I know you are, that God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect work. As one person said, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. I don't know about you, but that's certainly me. Abram's faith seemed weak at times, but thankfully we aren't saved by the quality or the intensity of our faith. We're saved by the object of our faith, an all-powerful God who does all things well. I'm so thankful that God's word shows us not only the successes of his saints, but also the failures. God, God's word doesn't blur or edit their lives, but presents them accurately. And this proves not only that his word is true, but it also brings encouragement to us, as 1 Corinthians reminds us, that we are all far from perfect. One day, uh, we will be like him when we are in glory. But until then, we're reminded even this morning that even in our seeming blunders, God is still at work. So we'll see the mistakes of Abram, but we'll also see that God is still at work. We left off in Genesis 12.9. In 12.9, notice with me, it says, And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, we read, Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. So these verses are a, a sort of bookend to this text. And yet, even though verses 10 through 20 seem to be a setback in Abram's life and faith, we see God is still at work for his glory. He will prove himself faithful. He will be true to his name and his promise. So instead of breaking this section down in just three or four sections and then trying to glean some points and bring application at the end of the sermon, I want to do it a little bit different today and maybe perhaps throughout this study of Abraham's life. And what I want to do is draw some application out of each section as we go. So we'll do a running commentary of application as we go. So the first thing I want us to jot down, if you're taking note, these four things, we'll go through each one, but here's a bird's eye view. We'll first see in verses 10 through 13 that hardship can tempt God's people to scheme. That certainly happens in Abram's life. We'll see in verses 14 through 16 that godless schemes will often backfire. We'll see, thirdly, that trusting in Egypt always proves foolish, verses 17 through 20, and how Egypt itself is a picture of bondage. We just read that from Deuteronomy 6. And then finally, we'll be reminded God works all things for good in the life of his people, verses 13, 1 through 4. So uh, we'll go through each one of those again. Let's look at the first section, which is hardship can tempt God's people to scheme. Verse 1 or verse 10 says, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. I like how Moses reiterates it was a famine. It was a severe famine. Now we can't truly relate to what it was like to experience a famine in ancient times. You and I, we, unless you're out walking the streets and grabbing fruit off the trees. We typically shop at grocery stores and we go to a grocery store like Publix or Costco or if you're a Christian, Aldi. And you go to those grocery stores and you, you walk in. There's a few of us out there that if you know, you know. But 
Uh, you walk in, you push your cart, you carry your, your basket, and then you select some things. You select your produce, your meat, your baked goods, your cheese, your frozen pizza, whatever it is. And then you go up and you pay for it uh, through the regular cashier where you actually meet someone's eyes and their gaze and greet them and maybe try to be an encouragement to them. Or you can do self-checkout and be that guy. But uh, we then take it home. We put it in the fan, uh, pantry, the fridge, and then eventually we eat it. That's how we get our food today. In Abram's day, in this agrarian society, there was no Costco to go to. You had to work the land almost all year long to, to yield crops. You had to keep and raise livestock 24-7. You had to trade with others to sustain yourself if you didn't have a crop personally on your farm uh, that you needed to sustain yourself. And by the way, this is a reality still in the world. They estimate that around 45% of the world's population today, 2022, 45% of the world's population today lives where agricultural activities represent the main occupation of the head of the household. So this is a reality around the world for many people today. But for an agrarian society, rain is not an inconvenience to your beach day. Rain is an absolute answer to prayer for provision. Sheep and goats were not cute additions to the petting zoo in the neighborhood. No, these were essential to supply milk and meat and clothing. The oxen and the donkeys, they worked the soil and they bore the brunt of the workload. The camels that were with you would supply the milk and the transportation. And all of the animals were needed and they actually themselves needed sufficient pasture to graze and to live. So a small caravan family like Abram's would desperately need servants who lived with them. The servants would receive the provision of the family. They'd receive protection from the family. And in turn, they would help care for the livestock. They would help work the land so that everyone in the family was sustained. Now, when a famine hit, this wasn't like Whole Foods being out of your favorite vegan popcorn. This was devastating. In fact, the writer Moses says in verse 10 that this was severe in all the land. This affected everyone. Now, if you're taking note, we'll give you some points on the screen about what the scripture says very briefly about famine. This is not exhaustive. Books can be written about it. This is just a few things. But sometimes we learn in scripture that God sends a famine of food or water when there's wickedness among a people. Often it's to remind them that their needs come from him. Secondly, we learn that famine can be also the direct result of political or social oppression. Now, those first two aren't necessarily separate. God can still send it, and it could be through these uh, means of oppression. But sometimes, thirdly, God sends famine to lead his people. We see that with, with Isaac soon, and with Jacob's sons, and with Naomi in the book of Ruth. But this is serious. Abram's wife, his nephew, his servants, the sheep, the oxen, they all may starve. And this may have been a new problem for Abram. A lot of commentators believe that because Abram lived in Ur and Haran, both uh, cities on the banks of the Euphrates River, that this is something he's never experienced before. Now in Canaan, this is a new problem he's never dealt with. He's never lacked for water. And now food and water in this time are scarce. You can't ignore a famine. You can't out-strategize a famine. You must make a decision. And usually that decision means to leave the area and go find sustenance elsewhere. That's common sense. But remember, remember as followers of God, God has called Abram out 
from his land into this land, from his kindred and family to inhabit this place. And what seems to be at the very first sign of serious plight, what does Abram decide to do? Where does he turn, turn to for help? Will he stay, even though it doesn't make sense, will he trust God? Or will he abandon the land and look for refuge elsewhere? A few commentators pointed out, one said the famine in Canaan was to teach Abram that even in the promised land, food and clothing come from the Lord and his blessing. Ligon Duncan says this, Abram has been promised by God that the Lord would give him a seed, the Lord would give him a land, and the Lord would make him a blessing to the nations. And Abram endangers all of those things by his behavior here. So rather than remaining, we read, Abram went down to Egypt. Now, thankfully, it says to sojourn there. The word for sojourn does not mean dwell. It actually is a different word. So the text is not indicating that Abram is moving away forever to go into Egypt. That's encouraging. That's good. He's not going to become a permanent Egyptian citizen, but he's still turning to Egypt rather than to Yahweh for help. Now, at this time, Egypt was one of the most prominent nations on the earth. It was one of the earliest kingdoms about which we have sufficient records. We know ancient Egypt was very prominent, very well known. Uh, At that time, though, it was confined to the Nile River Valley. Very attractive because it's a long, narrow band of incredibly fertile land surrounded by, on both sides, uninhabitable, barren desert. We know today Egypt, uh, we know it today by the magnificent structures like the pyramids, the sphinx, by the artwork, by the treasures. But by about 800 BC, this kingdom fell into decline. They continually were defeated by various uh, enemies and conquerors ranging from the Assyrians to Alexander the Great, eventually even modern times the British. So in a crisis like a famine, Egypt would have been a very alluring prospect. Word would have gotten up, hey, go to Egypt. Egypt is where you'll find food, you'll find bread, you'll find water. So you have a choice. You can wait in the land, you can pray, you can trust God, or you can pack it all up and flee south. And that's what Abram chooses. Now, we have a map of this journey. This would have been a long journey. Uh, It's about 500 miles from the area near Bethel to Uh, like the main area uh, around the capital of Egypt. This is around the distance that it would take to walk from here to Atlanta, almost the exact amount of miles. It's a long time. It's though one-third of the distance that Abram has just gone from Ur to Canaan. And so he's not going back home. That's encouraging. He's not returning to Ur, but he isn't staying where God has called him to make home. Now, in verse 11, Abram's scheme comes to light. Look at verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. That's a good thing to say to your wife. (laughs) And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, if you're taking note, two things I want you to jot down on this. First, we learn later in Genesis 20, when Abraham does the exact same thing with a man by the name of Abimelech, same exact scheme. Okay, we do learn there in Genesis 20 that Abram, or that Sarai is his half-sister. She was from the line of Terah, Abram's father, but not from Abram's mother. Adam Clark, in his commentary, 
uh, quotes a Jewish source that said, Terah first married Yonah, by whom he had Abraham. Afterwards, he married Tehavita, by whom he had Sarah. Thus, Adam Clark says, she was the sister of Abraham, being the daughter of the same father by a different mother. Now, you might say, well, that's odd and gross, but this close marital relationship is not forbidden by God until the law of Moses. So it's a stretch, and some commentators make this stretch, that Abram was sinning by marrying Sarai. I don't believe that's the case. God had not yet forbidden or prohibited this. But Abram's ruse is not technically a lie. Say you are my sister. That's not technically a lie. It's a half-truth. Now, is a half-truth a lie? That should be an easy yes, church. <laughs> I'm a little worried now. We might need, to, might need to slow down and do a separate teaching on this. A half-truth is when you only share a portion of information, just a little bit, with the intent to evade or misrepresent what is true. Teenagers are spectacular at half-truths. I should know. I have two of them. So here's what happens. The daughter says, can I stay the night with so-and-so? And dad says, have you asked your mother? And she says, of course. And then dad says, well, okay then. Does anyone know what the problem is here? Did, did you catch what the problem is? She did tell the truth. She did ask her mom. But it's a half-truth. Why? If you have teenagers, you know mom said no. <laughs> and so dad's just a little inside hint. Mom and, mom and I are one. That's what you always say. Mom and I are one. So whatever mom said, dad said. Then you check later. What would you say? Okay, we're good. We're on the same page. Half-truths are textbook manipulation. They're lies. And so Sarai technically is the half-sister to Abram, but she's more than that. This is deception. This is withdrawing information to lie. Christians, we need not ever fall into that. But secondly, I want to point out one more thing in this. Secondly, if you're keeping count on everyone's age, Sarai around this time is around 65 years old or so. Later in Genesis 17, verse 17, we'll see that she's 90, but she's considered old. So 65 is not old and beautiful, but 90 is old. Why is she beautiful here? But just a few years later, she's old. Well, remember the patriarchal lifespan at this time, it's still close in generational proximity to the flood of Noah's day. And the lifespan was about at this time twice as ours. So Abram will actually live to the age of 175 and Sarai to 127. The ages, as they get away from the proximity of the flood, continue to round out to where we are today. But Sarah here, around age 65, would be comparable to a woman today around uh, early 30s. At 90, however, she would be past her childbearing years and would be like a woman in her late 40s today. So the question, though, is why is Abram concerned that the Egyptians are going to kill him? Because have you read this? Maybe as Nick was reading the scripture, you go, why, why is he concerned about this? Um, some extra canonical Jewish texts suggest that Abram had a bad dream. As they were about to make it into Egypt, he had a bad dream that she lived and the Egyptians killed him. We can't take that as a source that we can trust. And so we can dismiss that, that as an option. What is happening, though, is that Abram is allowing the worst case scenario to enter his mind. He's allowing his fear to compel him to begin acting out this scheme. Now, we don't know this, but he may be thinking, if they know that I'm her husband, they will want her to themselves. She's beautiful. And that makes me a threat, and that means they may try to kill me. But if they think I'm her brother, 
then I'm safe. They're not going to try to kill me. In fact, they will outdo one another in offering me gifts in exchange for her hand in marriage. I may make out pretty well in this scenario, even if it doesn't go so well for my wife. Notice his motivation in verse 13, if you're unconvinced. He says that it may go well with me because of you. That's a really bad marriage uh, suggestion, by the way. Don't make decisions. This may go really well for me and not my spouse. Listen, Abram has no idea what he's about to get his wife into. But we see here that his scheme is motivated by the fear of man, and it's motivated by an act of self-saving and self-centeredness, even if it comes at a great cost to others whom he loves. This is tragic. Now, let's look at the second section, which is that godless schemes will often backfire, verses 14 through 16. When Abram, verse 14, entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. So he was right. She is beautiful, and they found her to be beautiful. Now, some suggest this was due to her lighter complexion compared to the Egyptian women. One one commentary had me chuckling. It actually Uh, argued that Egyptian women are ugly. And I just thought that is terrible to suggest that. That's not what's happening. Uh, She maybe is just a beautiful woman. Maybe that's it. But something happens that Abram was in a sense hoping for, but also not expecting. So what he's hoping for was that he wouldn't be killed, but so his scheme worked, but it also backfired. Look at verse 15. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, They praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, this is the first mention we have in Scripture of Pharaoh. It's a title that we'll see mentioned over 270 times in the Bible. This particular Pharaoh may have been a Pharaoh in the 12th dynasty, may have been. We know that the Egyptians worshipped Pharaoh as a god on earth, as an intermediary between gods and and people. So once the princes point out Sarai to him, it's agreed by most scholars that this phrase, taken into Pharaoh's house, actually meant that Sarai was brought into Pharaoh's harem. Here's what Stephen Cole says. He says, you don't stall or bargain when Pharaoh wants your sister in his harem. So Abram lost his wife for a while. There's no indication that Pharaoh violated Sarai. God protected her from adultery But she was separated from Abram, living in Pharaoh's harem, awaiting the wedding day. The scheme nearly cost Abram his wife, and with her, the promised blessing of God to make Abram's descendants into a great nation. He expected her to be beautiful. He expected to not be mistreated because of her by calling her his sister, but he never expected, probably, that she would be brought in to be Pharaoh's wife. That was unexpected. But in exchange for her, Pharaoh deals well with Abram. We see that in verse 16. And for her sake, he he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Now notice with me, not only is the famine averted, but now Abram's showered with gifts, additional animals. Not only are his sheep and oxen and camels not going to starve and die. Now he's been given additional animals. He's also given servants, male and female. This seems like an incredible blessing. But let's not forget, one of those female servants is very important. We learn about her later in Genesis 16. In verse 1, it says on the screen, now Sarai, Abram's wife, 
had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. It's pretty obvious from Scripture that Hagar was given to Abram during this stint in Egypt. And Hagar will again prove to be symbolic of Abram's choice to trust in the arm of the flesh rather than the promise of God. Hagar, this Egyptian slave, will eventually bear Ishmael. God doesn't recognize Ishmael. He's not the son of the promise. And Ishmael will prove for many generations to be a thorn in Israel's side. So even in this foolish decision that he makes, the tent of Abram, you could say, is enlarged. He's going to walk away from Egypt, eventually, in a sense, having plundered them, receiving gifts from them in exchange for nothing. And so though we, like Abram, can often trust God, uh, uh, many times we can scheme, and when we scheme, often those, those schemes will prove to backfire. Now, the third section is very important, and that is that trusting in Egypt always proves foolish. I want you to see verse 17. Verse 17 hinges and says, but. So though Abram had been showered with plunder, it says, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Verse 18, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, why is, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Remember, earlier, God had promised whoever dishonors you, I will what? I will curse. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever dishonors you, I will curse. Abram has been dishonored. Pharaoh has taken Abram's wife into his household and now separated from his wife. Abram has to endure the horrors of fearing that his wife may have been violated by someone else. The Lord begins to afflict Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. We aren't sure what they are. The text doesn't tell us, but it's enough to get his attention immediately. And ostensibly through these plagues, it becomes clear to Pharaoh maybe perhaps even from the mouth of Sarai herself, that she's married to Abram. Now, some would stop me and say, well, no, let's not condemn Abram's decisions, his actions, because the Bible's not condemning it in abandoning the promised land and going down to Egypt for help. But that's not accurate. Based on the evidence, particularly here, a man of God being rebuked by an unbeliever for his folly. We have to understand that Abram committed a serious blunder. He went down to Egypt for help. Remember, Moses, the author of Genesis, is writing this, and it's very possible that he is presenting Israel in this historical narrative with an object lesson from the life of Abram, a lesson they would see repeated in just a few generations as Jacob's family ends up in Egypt again, but this time, eventually, in utter bondage. Did you notice there's lots of parallels between this story and the Exodus? Think about it. Famine brings both Abram and the brothers of Joseph into Egypt. There are plagues here upon the house of Pharaoh, and there's plagues in the Exodus. The people of God in both of these accounts leave Egypt, going back up into the land of promise with plunder and riches. It's very possible that Moses has drawn a parallel for us, so that we can see the life of Abram prefiguring 
a greater redemption that God is going to accomplish one day in the future. It's not because of Abram's faithfulness, but because of God's. You see, generations later, we're going to see Israel again turning to Egypt when Assyria threatens. You can read that in 2 Kings 17. In the very next chapter, 2 Kings 18, decades after that, the southern kingdom of Judah will also follow suit, and they will turn to Egypt for help to rebel against Assyria. And the king of Assyria actually says this. He rebukes King Hezekiah powerfully. L- listen to this, 2 Kings 18, 21. We talk about being rebuked by an unbeliever. He says, behold, you're trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. What a great picture. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Years later, when the Babylonian captivity takes place, the prophet Jeremiah speaks to those Israelites who again seek to flee to Egypt for refuge, rather than trusting that God would care for them even in Babylon. In Jeremiah 43, he says, I'm going to inquire of the Lord. And they say, we will do whatever the Lord tells us, whatever he speaks to us. So Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 43. He says, then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you set your faces to enter Egypt and go to live there, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine of which you are afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. Eventually, Isaiah would probably say it the most clearly in the scriptures. Isaiah 31.1, he says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So this blip in the life of Abram is actually a foretaste of what God's people will continually be tempted with, and that is a nagging propensity to go south, to go to Egypt for help, even to their folly and shame. Now let's look at the final few verses. Uh, Look with me at Genesis 13, verses 1 through 4. I didn't want to stop at the chapter uh, marking because this gives us a good conclusion to this part of the story. It says in verse 1, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, which was now much more, and Lot with him, he will come into play a lot more next week, into the Negev. Verse 2, Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. By the way, whenever you see, almost any time you see that phrase, begin to call on the name of the Lord, that is a public. uh, That's not a private. I'm going to call on the Lord in my tent quietly. This This is an outward, very public display of worship. So our final point this morning Number four is that God works all things for good in the life of his people. You see, here's Abram, back to the place where his tent had been when he fled the famine. And back to the altar where he had first worshipped in the land. And Abram calls on the name of the Lord. We don't see him doing that in Egypt. God had been faithful to send the plagues to prompt Pharaoh to expel him back to the land of promise. And even through all these circumstances and these failures, God was working all things for the good in Abram's life. 
John Calvin used to say, there's nothing of our own in our good. Think of that for a minute. There's nothing of our own in our good. Abram, apart from grace, was a coward. He was a liar. He was a failure. He had allowed the fear of man, the threat of famine, to almost thwart the promises of God in his life. But in God's providential grace, in God's covenantal love, God was still working all things for the good in his life. Which begs the question for us, theologically, did God allow the famine or did God send the famine? As I'm growing older and looking back at the trials that I've experienced in the short 28 years that I've been alive, I don't know why that always gets laughter. I'm inclined to believe that God didn't just allow the famine to test his faith, but God sent it. As we'll see later in Joseph's life, he said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He didn't say, but God sort of allowed it. God wasn't sure, God, or worse, God didn't have a clue what was gonna happen, so he's making decisions on the fly. No, God meant it for good. This trial was not meant to hinder the worship of a good and loving God. It was designed to heighten it. God sent the famine, not just to test his faith, but to prove his faith. See, one of the hymns that John Newton wrote, we know John Newton, of course, from the, probably the most popular or greatest hymn that we've known as far as popularity, Amazing Grace. But there's another great hymn, many great hymns that John Newton wrote, and one of them is called, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. Have you ever done that? I was told in youth group when I was growing up, don't ever pray for patience because then God will make you go through things that cause patience. So don't pray for that. I think that's a bad prayer. We should pray for patience. We should pray for growth. But here's how God works to answer that prayer. Here's this hymn. Listen to the words of this. It's really a poem, but you can sing it. He says, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray. And he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. Hmm. What if the purpose of our pain, of our trial, of our circumstance, like in Abram's life, is not to show us that God is afar off, that he's aloof, that he's uncaring, that he's unconcerned. What if instead, the very purpose of your plight is to show you and I that nothing in this world can truly satisfy or sustain us apart from him? that no matter what we may lose in this life, as we just sang, goods and kindred, no matter what we may lose in this life, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. That nothing that we endure will actually 
thwart our status as beloved child of God. That yes, we go through these these times of, of up and down, but even though we endure those things, nothing will loosen his grip on us because he who promises is faithful and he will not, he cannot deny himself. You see, as we close this morning, we come to understand this very strange story that will, in a sense, be repeated in the life of Abram is also a picture of God's faithfulness and provision. You see, not only does Abram leave Egypt to enter the Negev with plunder and riches, but his very calling up from Egypt is a picture of another calling up from Egypt. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Not only is this a picture of Israel coming up out of Egypt into the land of promise, but it's a very verse that is quoted to picture the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember his parents being led by God, not escaping God, being led by God, went down into Egypt, this time directed by the Holy Spirit to escape the doom of Herod's threats. And in Matthew chapter 2, and Luke accounts this as well, but in Matthew 2 it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And notice what Matthew says. Luke reiterates this. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. You see, the promise to Abram would be fully realized and expressed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our one mediator between God and man. You think about what Jesus endured. There was no escape from the horrors of Calvary, no Egypt to escape to. And rather than get away from the plight or the threat of death by subjecting his bride to the desire of men, Jesus instead laid down his life to save his bride out of the wickedness of men. When men lied about him, he was silent as a sheep is before her shears. And though he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus was faithful and bore the fearsome judgment of God, even though it cost him his precious life. We see that this is a picture of the Lord who came up out of Egypt. What a wondrous and glorious Savior. Amen? And so this morning, I just want to call us to action that we as a, as a citizen of heaven, that we as the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the people of God, would learn from this story, this mistake in the life of Abram, that we would be strengthened by his grace to trust the Lord in times of trouble. So let's bow our heads together. Our blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your great mercy by which you've caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our inheritance is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for us. And we, by God's power, are being shielded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this we rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, we've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though we've not seen you, we love you. Though we do not see you now, Lord, we believe in you. And we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, 
as we obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Therefore, Lord, we prepare our minds for action. And being sober-minded, we set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Spirit of God, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. As we've learned these truths, would you allow them to be take, take up a permanent place in our hearts that we would abide in you and your word would abide in us through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. For listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.